0: REACH freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: So many of us dream of a perfect life. But what is perfection? Is it something that truly exists in the world? It often comes down to the perspective of what you believe perfection to be. For some, a perfect life is filled with the glitz and glamour, living luxuriously through wealth. These types of people tend to be driven by showing off their hard-earned material possessions for all the world to see. For others, life is perfect enough after they've met the right person, the one that proves love is real. The one you can see settling down with and growing old together, not just as a couple, but as a family. But what would happen if two people from each side of the aforementioned spectrum were to meet and fall in love? One in which material possessions meant more than a spouse and one that put more value into family and their partner than luxury. What compromises could be made to ensure that both sides were happy? Once you've found the person who you think could make that dream a reality, life has a strangely twisted way bringing you crashing back to Earth. On June 19, 2017, around 9.30 p.m., 49-year-old Fotis Dulos called the Farmington, Connecticut Police Department. To report that his wife, 48-year-old Jennifer Dulos, and their five children had not yet returned home from a trip to New York and had simply gone missing.
2: And what is the location of your emergency?
3: Uh, yeah, I,
2: uh, I'm worried about my uh, wife and kids because they uh, they left to go to New York, and I haven't uh, been able to get in touch with them.
4: Okay, and how uh, how long ago did they leave Connecticut? Uh,
2: they left Connecticut, I uh, believe, around. Uh, PM? Excuse me? PM? PM, yes. Okay.
5: I've been texting, and I see that the texts are being delivered,
2: Mm -hmm. but nobody's responding to me. Okay. Um, so they're
4: supposed to... Do you have... Okay, so I'll send an officer to speak with you. Um, but do you have, like, the the Find Your iPhone app or anything like that?
2: Uh, WhatsApp.
4: Okay. Do you have iPhones? Yes, I do. Okay, all right. Um, what's your name? It's
2: uh, FOTIS, F-O-T-I-S. Okay. Uh, last name is Dulos, D-U-L-O-S.
4: Okay, I'll send an officer over to speak with you. Okay, you're at 4 Jefferson Crossing.
2: Yes. Okay. Uh, what time do you think he'll be here?
4: Uh, he should be there shortly. He's uh, okay. he's not too far. Okay.
2: Okay, very good. Thank you so much. Okay, Thank you. Wait. Yep.
1: With Jennifer and the couple's five children having traveled from Connecticut to New York, it was only natural that Fotis was worried after his wife didn't come home and hadn't responded to his repeated text messages. Unbeknownst to Fotis, the night before his family's trip to New York, Jennifer had packed up the bare necessities for her and the five children with no intentions of returning home to the family's sprawling 15,000-square-foot colonial-style mansion. From the outside looking in, the Dulos family seemed to have it all. Jennifer had become a homemaker who took care of the couple's five children, and Fotis had built up a luxurious construction company. The two appeared to be so in love, but the perfect life they appeared to have to everyone on the outside, one that so many yearned for, wasn't all that it seemed to be. Jennifer Dulos was born Jennifer Farber on September 27, 1968, to parents Gloria and Hilliard Farber. Hilliard was a wealthy banker, broker, and hedge fund founder, while his wife was an environmental philanthropist. Money was never a concern for the Farber family. Gloria's brother and sister-in-law went on to form Liz Claiborne Inc., which eventually grew into a billion-dollar women's fashion and lifestyle company. While most dream of leaving their hometown and starting their own lives, and experiencing all that the world has to offer, Jennifer dreamed a simpler dream, to marry and raise a family in New York City where she had grown up. Jennifer would pen an essay for the publication of collections called Personals, Dreams and Nightmares from the Lives of 20 Young Writers, by author Thomas Beller, a former flame of Jennifer's, in 1998. She went on to write,
4: The New York Times Wedding Pages held a hypnotic sway over me since I discovered them at age 11. Entering the structured, ambitious black-and-white world at the back of the Sunday paper, I was window shopping for a life. I imagined I'd live on Park Avenue in the 60s, in a perfect 8 with a fireplace and a service entrance, and supervise our New York calendars. I'm the kind of person who looks at other people's lives and wonders if I could have what they have. The question of whether or not I want it usually comes second. And later I would try on a series of men, figuring out how their lives looked on me. Sometimes having to alter my contours to force this appealing new entity to fit like a trace over my own self.
1: But with age and time, we often long to find out where we belong in the world. Jennifer had discovered a passion and love for the art of writing, and that passion led her to attend Brown University. During her first week at the prestigious Ivy League University, Jennifer met Fotis Doulos, a Greek-European studying from abroad. Fotis, a year her senior, had moved from Athens, Greece to attend school at Brown University. He came from a world opposite of the one Jennifer had grown up in. Born on August 6 in 1967, in Istanbul, Turkey, to Cleopatra Dulos, Fotis came from a humble, middle-class family. Eventually, Cleopatra would move Fotis and his sister, Rina, to Athens when he was seven. Growing up in the Mediterranean, Fotis fell in love with the water and, in particular, with water skiing. In 1986, when Fotis moved to the U.S. for schooling, he longed for the finer things in life. While attending school, It was said that Fotis had a hard time connecting with the other European students, mainly because he wanted to experience culture and meet people from the United States. He had what most called the, quote, American dream. Fotis would later write in a publication called Working Journal by Michael Fielder. By the time I was in my late teens and approaching the end of my high school years, I knew that I wanted to get exposed to society and cultures beyond the confines of my own country. Greece is demographically a very homogenous country, had become my home, but I felt an overwhelming need to be immersed in an environment with more cultural diversity. When Fotis and Jennifer connected during her first week at Brown, the two seemingly hit it off and had found a mutual level of attraction for one another. Unfortunately, it would be short-lived as the two became busy with their academics and went on their separate ways after only a week. Fotis eventually graduated from Brown in 1989 with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Economics and Applied Mathematics, whereas Jennifer graduated a year later in 1990 and went on to earn a Master's degree in Writing from New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. After finishing her academics, Jennifer had written four full-length plays and within her writing was able to express the feelings she was dealing with internally. Vanessa Gregoriadis, a friend from Jennifer's past, an article on Jennifer in Vanity Fair, describing her as well-liked and as, quote, a vibrant presence in the New York literary scene, observant and wryly funny about human behavior, and was generous and supportive towards other writers in her midst. But for those who didn't know Jennifer, she could come across as what's been described as aloof or having a nervous, girlish energy. She was known to be generous. After all, her family had money. But Jennifer was humble about the money she had, seemingly always picking up the tab at dinner for friends and acquaintances. When it came to dating, Jennifer had boyfriends, albeit nothing serious. She was always looking at how she would have to mold herself to fit into a man's life, and wanted something more natural, where she could just be herself. But she never quite found what she was looking for within her inner social circle. But the one constant she looked forward to in her life was her Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, named Sophie who she wrote about in a Connecticutpatch.com piece entitled The Best Part of My Night.
4: When I was single and living in New York, the best part of my night was when I got home after being out with friends, at dinner, parties, movies, or just hanging out. I would take my dog Sophie for a walk, whether it be 11 p.m. or 2 a.m. I would walk her about my neighborhood, the Central Village, just above Washington Square Park. I usually stopped by a Korean deli for something sweet, a bachi chocolate. It was this lovely post people and buzz, chill out time that I adored and looked forward to. I loved Sophie so intensely. The first night, her crate was right up on my bed, next to my pillow. I felt so sorry that she was missing her mom and litter mates, her family. In fact, I didn't sleep for two weeks straight, the first two weeks I had her. I wanted to tend to her every need. I just wanted to hold and behold her. I even got an eye infection, probably from lack of sleep, and ended up at the emergency room of St. Vincent's Hospital with her in her crate. I could not part from her for one minute.
1: In 2000, Jennifer decided she needed a change. She was a lover of the snowy slopes of Colorado, so she packed up her belongings and moved to Aspen with her loving best canine friend, Sophie, by her side. It was a different life than what Jennifer had previously known. She knew no one there, though she would later state that she knew it was where she belonged. She could finally focus on writing the manuscript for her first novel. And while life for the moment was great, unfortunately Sophie died prematurely, after just eight short years in 2002. The following year, while at the airport in Aspen, Jennifer would have a chance encounter that would forever change her life. After Fotis left Brown University in 1989, he went on to become a partner at Petros Doulos & Company until 1995. In 1997, he graduated from Columbia Business School with a Master of Business Administration in International Business and Finance. That same year, Fotis accepted a management job at Ernst & Young, working there prior to and during the company being acquired by Capgemini. It was there at Ernst & Young that Fotis Dulos would meet his future wife, Hilary Aldama. Hilary was 10 years younger than Fotis, but like him, she was a Brown alumni who also worked in management at Ernst & Young. The pair eventually wed in Athens, Greece in 2000, and subsequently moved into a home in Canton, Connecticut. Life seemed to be going fairly well for the newlyweds, until 2003, when Fotis had a chance run-in with Jennifer at the Aspen Airport. For months, Fotis and Jennifer emailed back and forth, rekindling a once-lost romance. Eventually, their rekindled romance would lead to an amicable divorce between Fotis and Hillary. The two equally split up their possessions, with Fotis retaining ownership of the couple's home on Sunset Drive in Canton. On July 12th of 2004, Hillary and Fotis' divorce was finalized. She would go on to receive her degree in law from the University of Texas and become a successful attorney in the South. With a new life in front of him, Fotis and Jennifer married just over a month later in Manhattan on August 28, 2004. Jennifer would later write about their romance in an online blog for Patch.com.
4: Serendipity cast its spell. This man whom I'd met the first week of college and befriended back then. This young man I'd always liked. We had a special chemistry together. Always. Something special and precious and we were careful to be careful with one another. Until lightning finally struck.
1: Rena Dulos, Fotis' older sister recalled the couple's wedding as a, quote, great, beautiful day. The couple surrounded by both Jennifer and Fotis's friends and family, some of whom had traveled from abroad. From various sources, the wedding was a big affair. Jennifer and Fotis then moved into the home he had previously owned, with Hillary and Canton, while he began making plans on starting his own company. That same year, Fotis stuck to his plans and created The Four Group Incorporated, which was a luxury construction company that specialized in building homes for the most wealthy in society. In an interview with the American Builders Quarterly, Fotis explained that his love for real estate and aesthetics sparked his interest in starting The Four Group. I'd always been interested in real estate. I grew up watching my sister, who was 13 years older than I am, flourish in a career as an architect, and I like the aesthetics of nice homes. So, I financed a home for a builder and paid very close attention to what he was doing. I realized it's a pretty straightforward process and leverages a lot of the experiences I had in management consulting. With his new wife, Jennifer, at his side, Fotis felt like he was on top of the world. Although he didn't have client confidence starting out, he did have Jennifer's father, Hilliard Farber, who would finance his projects with large, low-interest loans. Because of his love for the finer things and with his financial knowledge, Once clients started coming to the Four Group, Fotis was able to lean into his experience in financial management and consulting to speak their language when it came to data or analytics. And that was enough to gain their confidence. The Four Group Incorporated began development in the Farmington Valley area, a suburb just 15 minutes outside of Hartford, Connecticut. While life was great for both Jennifer and Fotis, they knew that something was missing. They were in their mid to late thirties when they married and childbearing years were closing and coming to an end. Fotis had no children with Hillary while they were together, but with the use of assisted reproductive technologies, both Fotis and Jennifer were blessed with five children, two sets of twins and a baby girl, all aptly named after Fotis' homeland of Greece. Fotis was extremely proud of the lands where he came from. Jennifer stated while she would enjoy reading the writings of lifestyle authors, Fotis was more into fiction and writings of Constantinople and the fall of the Byzantine Empire. To the now father of five, heritage and history were important to him. Although reading and writing was Jennifer's true love, she had finally found her calling in being a mother, and the manuscript for her first novel was silently tucked away into the darkness of her nightstand to be continued later in time. Fotis Dulos and his family were enjoying the successes of the four group, and in 2011, the company built a custom home at 4 Jefferson Crossing. The 15,000 square foot colonial style mansion sat on just over two beautiful acres. It was a truly top-of-the-line construction, and far from the perfect date that Jennifer had dreamed of and previously written about in her essay penned in Thomas Beller's book, Personals, Dreams and Nightmares from the Lives of 20 Young Writers but the home itself was still a structure to be envied. By many accounts, Fotis was charming and gregarious, but his work life was clustered and full of stress. And while his hope was to sell this pinnacle of the four group's development, eventually Fotis moved his family into the home after unsuccessfully listing it for sale at $3.25 million. It wasn't uncommon for the Dulos family to move into some of the four group's properties as they had moved into a custom home at 5 Charlotte Court in Avon. But this particular home at 4 Jefferson Crossing represented the epitome of wealth and establishment. It was a home that would provide Jennifer with a writing studio, a place where Fotis could establish a home base of operations for the four group, permitting him the ability to work from home. But it was also a place where all of the children had more than enough room to grow and play. At the beginning of 2012, before the move began, Jennifer started writing an online blog on Patch.com, which was available for those in the Farmington Valley community to read. It was here on this blog that she would reconnect with writing, sharing stories of motherhood, marriage, and the value of family. On January 13, 2012, Jennifer took to her Patch.com blog to reflect on the eight-year journey which had led her to where she currently was.
4: For me... Writing, doing pickups and drop offs, and classes and play dates, and buying more gifts for more of your friends' birthday parties. Today at Pick Up for Petros, I looked at all the happy, diverse, amazing kids pile out of class. I have known most of these children from afar for four years now. So many have stayed. I love their parents. I love that it's all about the kids. I remember before I was married and was single. And my father said to me, It's someone you already know, meaning who I would marry. Who, who? I asked. Sometimes the best in life is right at your doorstep. They say you can't find a man sitting on your couch. Well, I beg to differ. I was home, back in New York, and an email came to me one year after re-meeting him. He was looking for me, and was living just two miles from me downtown. He wanted to get together. We celebrate the anniversary of the email. January 13, 2004. Now, eight years later, seven plus years of marriage, five kids, five moves, and some pets. Here we are.
1: And as the family began their move, Jennifer recalled how much their current but temporary home at 5 Charlotte Court had meant to them.
4: Okay, okay. So, now I'm officially a weepy loony. While giving Clea Noel her last nighttime bottle at 5 Charlotte Court, I played for her, for me, the Miranda Lambert video of The House That Built Me. I got misty. Okay, I cried. I thought of how every memory of hers, or for me, of her, is associated deeply with this temporary house. And I finally got sad. Bringing her home, they let us out of the hospital after less than 24 hours, and having her up on the third floor with me as Christiane hovered about her new little sister. The first two weeks of living through the hardest thing I've ever done, trying to feed her all through the night, again up on the third floor, and she crying because she wasn't getting enough, because she was tongue-tied. Learning to walk, Standing at the base of the stairs in the kitchen, holding on to Beckham, her golden retriever, basically. He has now become hers. I would sing the song for you here, but that would be awful. But you can go to YouTube and hear it. It's really very hokey, but nice and affecting. I always imagine with songs that somehow I'm this great singing sensation. And I'm playing them at 17, at my high school graduation ceremony for everyone, and making them weep. Like this song, for instance, but back in 1986. When my father asked me what I'd miss going to college, I told him, My room. Dad, I'll miss my room. Tomorrow, we will have more lasts. More goodbyes. To the red front door. To the refrigerator. To the kitchen sink. We've done this with the older boys with every house we've left. Tonight in the tub they kissed the water and said farewell. Then we high-fived the tile. It will be moving to move. I move.
1: As the Dulo's family settled into their new home at 4 Jefferson Crossing, Life was indeed at its finest, with the family traveling frequently to Colorado, Greece, and Florida. At one point, Fotis was invited as a featured contributor in a 300-page collection entitled Working Journal by Michael Fielder. The collection was a series of black-and-white photographs of people at work, with their background stories attached. For his contribution, Fotis penned the following. Dad, let go. You're hurting my hand. This was my usual complaint to my father, who insisted in always accompanying me during the rare occasions that I was allowed to walk through the streets of Constantinople, presently known as Istanbul, in fear of terrorism. It is in Constantinople where I was born and raised for the first seven years of my life, the youngest of a family of four with Greek origin. Being a part of the Greek minority in Turkey allowed me to witness and understand a great deal about what it takes to live harmoniously. In a multicultural society. When I attended Brown University and Columbia Business School, I met people from every corner of the globe, and this excited me beyond belief. After nine years in New York City, seven of them working for a management consultancy, I decided to move to Connecticut. I became a father of five beautiful children, two girls and three boys, who all and each one mean the world to me. I started four Group in 2004, and became a builder of fine homes. I love creating structures that complement their surroundings, enhancing them. Mostly, though, I love working with others and bringing their vision to life, giving them a place to call home. Home for me is being with my loved ones. My father no longer makes me hold his hand. I am now free to explore the world and share its possibilities with my loved ones. The excerpt was signed, Fotis Dulos, Father, Builder, Skier, Eventually, the stresses of running a luxury construction company began piling up on Fotis. He began to regularly vent to Jennifer. In one instance, Fotis had felt scorned by a former client and told his wife that he wanted to drop a brick out of a plane on the former client's home. This vengeful plot came across to Jennifer as odd to say the least. The behavior seemed uncharacteristic of her husband Most of us have ways in which we decompress, and for Fotis, that was indulging in his love of water skiing, though indulging might be putting it lightly. Fotis was obsessed with the sport, often spending 10 days a month away from the home at water skiing competitions across the country, as well as attending competitions in his homeland of Greece. It was such a fierce passion of his, he wanted Jennifer to be involved, but being on the water took a toll on her body.
4: It hurts my back a bit, and I feel the opposite of limber. I get all tight and muscly. Yuck.
1: Nonetheless, Fotis' love of the sport led him to teaching his children, and as some years passed by, the boys ended up nationally ranked. Fotis took great pride as a father, watching his children succeed. Jennifer, on the other hand, believed that her husband was putting too much pressure on them. Nonetheless, it wasn't a concern just yet. With her husband being gone so frequently every month at water skiing events, Jennifer began to get used to being at home with the children and the doulos' new hired nanny, Lauren. But something began to change when Fotis came home, and the changes, while small, were enough to catch her attention. In a post to her Patch.com blog, Jennifer wrote of these changes and casually reflected on a rather grim outlook.
4: Noelle kicked and turned and woke and reawoke And what an awful night of non-sleep it was. To the point that I thought, okay, let's sleep train. And I brought her to her room and she wailed and wailed. No mommy. And then I felt her head and she was warm. And back to bed with us she came for more no sleep. It was not like this when my husband Fotis was not here. We had more room. I and she, and he, somewhere afar, slept better, but if Fotis is to come back, he leaves again today, next Tuesday, then we do have to get this dealt with, which may mean her crying, but it's just so heart-wrenching. Then again, who can subsist on no sleep, and kicks in the nose? Will Noelle be banished from the kingdom of the family bed? Will she learn, or be forced to sleep alone? Foda suggested that we put a crib in our room so she is not lonely and our limbs are not the target of her Russian roulette of jabs and outright punches. Where do I pull a crib from? I guess a pack and play? Everything about this makes me immediately tired currently. Oh, Noelle. I know that this too shall pass, but I fear I may be in a body bag by then. Love your mom.
1: As the years began passing by, Jennifer continued writing almost daily on her Patch.com blog. And while she had an outlet to escape everyday life, things started to become tense in the Dulos family home. She wanted a lifelong partner in FOTUS, but he was too absorbed in his work and water skiing competitions. Friends described how they believed that Jennifer was the person who wanted to be at her husband's side, but had ultimately resigned herself to the background of his life. His interests became her interests and his friends became her friends. Jennifer had slowly been losing herself in the interest of loving her husband and family. Fotis began training the children intensely at a local pond for their extracurricular activities, believing that instilling them with an instinct to succeed and to be competitive was important. But eventually, his pressure on the children spilled over to the point where the kids began complaining to Jennifer.
4: The children have told me that They do not want to water ski at this level. They are all physically and emotionally exhausted and have begged me to do something about it. We are all terrified to disobey my husband.
1: The one area where Jennifer felt she lacked confidence was in confronting people, especially her husband, regarding any issues that would arise.
4: I wish I were a stronger person and that confrontation did not both scare and appall me. I just need quiet, peace, and calm.
1: As 2017 approached, Jennifer's father's health began rapidly declining until his eventual passing. It was something that had taken a hard toll on Jennifer as she was particularly close to her father. Throughout the years, Hilliard was a champion for Jennifer, helping her along her journey of life. And while she attempted to lean on her husband for comfort and strength during an intense period of grief, She would eventually find out that Fotis was having an affair with a woman named Michelle Traconis, a woman who happened to work for the four group and someone who had frequently come into their home. According to friends, Fotis explained to Jennifer that he had fallen out of love with her, and even though the couple would no longer be together, he suggested that her and the kids could still live with him at 4 Jefferson Crossing. He even went as far as stating ...that he would like to move Michelle and her child into the same home... ...so they could all live together in the large estate. After all, there was 15,000 square feet of available living space. But after 13 long years of marriage... ...it wasn't an offer that Jennifer could get on board with. At this point in time, the tension between Jennifer and Fotis was at an all-time high. Their nanny Lauren, who had been working for the couple for four years witnessed extremely disturbing behavior. She recalled that the couple had been loudly arguing while her and one of the children were in a bedroom. Jennifer then ran into the room and locked the door behind her while Fotis chased behind and began banging on the door. After a while, he walked away, likely realizing that Lauren and one of his children were also in the room. Jennifer told Lauren she didn't want to call the cops, because Fotis had on many occasions threatened to take away the children and disappear to Greece, never to be seen again. On another occasion, Lauren had found Jennifer crying in the driveway, and when asked about what had happened, Jennifer told her that Fotis had tried to run her over, and that she was forced to jump out of the vehicle's path to avoid being hit. The final straw, however, was when Jennifer had found Fotis had been keeping what she considered to be a dangerous secret throughout their marriage there was a no-gun policy for their household especially with the introduction of small children but one day unexpectedly fotis decided to show his children his newly purchased nine millimeter glock handgun the children told jennifer and for her this was the breaking point she knew that she needed to get her children out of any potential danger after the concerning behavior fotis had been exhibiting so with the help of the family nanny, Lauren, Jennifer devised a plan to take the children to her mother's house in New York while she began preparing to file for divorce. On June 20th, 2017, the morning after making the 911 call reporting Jennifer and his five children missing, Fotis Dulos was officially served with divorce papers. Those closest to the situation knew that he would be enraged. And while Jennifer had concerns of how her estranged husband might retaliate, Her main concern was finding a new home to shelter her children and ensuring that their new location remained hidden from FOTUS. Thankfully, Jennifer was able to lean on her mother Gloria for support both emotionally and financially as she prepared to leave with the kids. Jennifer and the children settled into 69 Wells Lane in New Canaan, Connecticut. While it wasn't a 15,000 square foot luxury home, it did boast seven bedrooms and seven baths, which gave each child their own space, plus an office for Jennifer to write in. She hired Jeffrey and Gina Bunch, who owned daily moving and storage to handle the move. But for the professional movers, nothing with this job came easy, with FOTUS blocking their entry on multiple occasions. It was obvious that she was going through a lot. She was, you know, separating from her husband. She was leaving the house. She was scared. Yeah. She was absolutely scared.
3: And we'd actually go down there and we weren't allowed in. Um by her husband. Would you know, wouldn't let the gentleman into the house.
1: Things had gotten so bad that Jennifer asked Jeffrey to go incognito, hoping that upon being surprised, Fotis would let the company retrieve her belongings. She wanted me to come, you know, in my regular clothes and in a vehicle that wasn't marked. That's very unusual, and she definitely did not want word to get out where she was going and when she was going there. Fotis had been through a divorce before, one that was as amicable as it could be, considering the circumstances. But based on how legitimately terrified Jennifer was of Fotis, the divorce proceedings ahead were going to be nasty and downright contentious. Early on, Jennifer filed for emergency custody of the children explaining that Fotis was verbally abusive and resorted to bullying, threatening to obtain control. She went on to explain how in the past, he had threatened to take the children away and told her, quote, you will never find us. She documented that his strict water skiing regimen for the children had become overbearing, with the kids on the water some days from the early morning hours through sundown. When one of the children had told Fotis that they no longer wanted to water ski, he allegedly picked up a ski and threw it at a rock, subsequently breaking it. Jennifer officially stated in a divorce affidavit, quote,
4: I am afraid of my husband. I know that filing for divorce and filing this motion will enrage him. I know he will retaliate by trying to harm me in some way. I am afraid for my safety and the physical safety and emotional well-being of our minor children.
1: Fotis on the other hand had argued that Jennifer was unfit to raise their children, claiming she had a substance abuse problem and that she was abusing prescription medication. The issue both parties faced though was that the presiding judge wasn't going to listen to the he said, she said, and ultimately ruled that the couple were to share joint custody of their children. One of the stipulations of this ruling was that the children were not to be exposed to either of the parents' partners, whether new or existing, namely FOTUS' new love interest, Michelle Traconis. The judge's orders contained the following consideration. The plaintiff is not established by a preponderance of the evidence that there is an immediate and present risk of physical danger or psychological harm to the party's children. As a result, the request for emergency relief is denied. FOTUS, while garnering a checkmark in the win column, was soon to face another civil case. This one from Jennifer's mother, Gloria Farber. Who alleged that her soon-to-be ex-son-in-law had stolen millions of dollars from her with seemingly no intention of paying the money back. While Fotis may have had an arrangement with Hilliard in the past, Gloria wanted her money back and was going to fight tooth and nail to get it. In March of 2018, just short of a year since the initial ruling of joint custody, Jennifer once again filed for emergency custody of the couple's five children. This time, the case was brought before presiding judge Donna Haller. Judge Haller determined that Fotis had put the children in danger and had subsequently lied to the court. Not only had Fotis brought the children around Michelle Traconis after she and her daughter moved into the large estate at 4 Jefferson Crossing, but he had also pressured them into lying for him when speaking with the guardian ad litem, who was representing the children throughout the contentious divorce. Judge Haller stated, quote, The court does not find the defendant to be credible. The defendant does not seem to appreciate in any respect the consequences of lying under oath and willfully violating a court order. His facility in testifying falsely to the court suggests that he is equally comfortable in encouraging the children to lie to achieve his desired outcome. While Jennifer was granted full physical custody of the children, the estranged couple still shared legal custody of all five kids. All in all, in just under two years of divorce proceedings, over 500 individual motions were filed. By 2019, it was likely that Jennifer and Fotis were both looking forward to having the tumultuous process come to an end, but near the end of May, an event took place that would change everything. The morning of May 24, 2019 began as it normally did, with Jennifer waking the children, preparing lunches, and getting everyone ready for school. Her plan after dropping the kids off at New Canaan Country School was to head into New York for a couple of doctor's appointments. At 7.59 a.m., Jennifer arrived at the New Canaan Country School, and her five children departed from her 2017 Chevrolet Suburban. Just six minutes later, at 8.05 a.m., Jennifer arrived back at her home at 69 Wells Lane, where she then pulled her car into the garage. Two hours later, at approximately 1025, Jennifer's black 2017 Chevy Suburban was then seen leaving the residence. Jennifer's nanny Lauren promptly arrived at the home at 1130. Upon entering the third bay of the three-car garage, Lauren noted that Jennifer's 2014 Range Rover was still parked in the second bay. It struck her as odd because she had been under the impression that Jennifer would be taking that particular vehicle for her trip. The night before, Jennifer had told Lauren that it was easier to navigate the city and to park in the Range Rover than it was with the Suburban. As Lauren made her way inside of the home, she found Jennifer's handbag on the ground in the mudroom that separated the garage from the kitchen. She then noticed that Jennifer left an unopened granola bar and a mug of tea on the kitchen counter. After Lauren finished washing the tea mug, she reached for a paper towel and noticed that the roll had been nearly depleted. When she looked in the supply closet, she was shocked to find that only two rolls were left from the night before, when she had stocked a dozen paper towel rolls from a fresh package. Around noon, Lauren was supposed to pick up four of the children from school, as the other child was slated to go to a friend's house. When Lauren texted Jennifer, she received no reply. In the seven years that Lauren had worked for the Dulos family, there had never been a time when a text regarding the children went unanswered from Jennifer. An hour after the first message, Lauren sent another at 1.10 p.m., notifying Jennifer that they were now heading into New York for the children's orthodontist appointment. And again, she received no reply. Then at 2.30 p.m., Lauren and the children arrived at Gloria Farber's apartment while they waited for Jennifer to arrive. By 4 o'clock, after Jennifer Still hadn't arrived home, Lauren tried calling Jennifer's phone, but it went straight to voicemail. According to Lauren, her stomach sank and she began to feel as if something was terribly wrong. She later stated, I have never, ever had a hard time reaching her and never had an issue with her phone being off. With no response or communication from Jennifer, Lauren took the children to their orthodontist appointment that was set for 4.40. After the appointment, Lauren reached out to Gloria, asking if anyone had heard from Jennifer. So far, she had received no response. Gloria would subsequently reach out to friends and family, who may have been in contact with Jennifer throughout the day. But everyone Gloria contacted stated they had not heard from her. By 7 p.m., both Lauren and Jennifer's close friend, Laurel Watts, contacted the New Canaan Police Department to report Jennifer as missing. But just one minute prior to that call, a new Canaan police officer made a discovery at Waveney Park, three miles from the residence on 69 Wells Lane, that would begin to reveal a very disturbing story. The officer discovered an unoccupied black 2017 Chevy Suburban parked with its running lights still on. Upon looking into the vehicle, The officer noted that the large SUV had been put into reverse before the engine was turned off. For the moment, there was no immediately known correlation between the abandoned vehicle and the now reported missing mother of five. New Canaan police officers made their way to 69 Wells Lane, the home Jennifer shared with her children. Lauren had provided the garage keypad code when she made her initial report. When officers first entered, They located what they believed to be blood evidence located on Jennifer's 2014 Range Rover that was parked in the center garage stall. Shortly thereafter, New Canaan Police Department Investigation Division Officer Thomas Patton arrived on the scene and located what appeared to be more blood inside of the garage, which suggested that some type of severe attack or physical altercation had likely taken place. Crime scene analysts were brought on scene to confirm that the dark reddish-brown stains and apparent blood spatter investigators had discovered in the garage was, in fact, blood. Preliminary tests revealed the positive presence of blood, and analysts also repeated that it appeared as if there was an attempt to clean up some type of crime scene before police first arrived. They also noted the following apparent blood stains throughout the home as follows. Blood-like stain on the Range Rover hood. The Range Rover Bumper, Range Rover Rear Fender, Kitchen Sink Faucet, Cabinet Under Sink, Garage Door, and Garage Wall near Mudroo. Lauren alerted investigators that Jennifer was in the middle of a nasty divorce with her estranged husband Fotis Doulos. After hearing of the divorce, police reached out to Fotis, and he agreed to come by the New Canaan Police Department the following day to speak with investigators. In the meantime, he was permitted to have contact only with Lauren. During a phone call, Lauren noted that Fotis never once asked what was going on or showed any concern for Jennifer, having been reported missing. He simply reminded Lauren that he had a supervised visitation the following day at 11 a.m. It seemed that just about everyone besides Fotis sat impatiently waiting for any news regarding Jennifer Dulos. At 5.39 the next morning, Fotis began texting Lauren, asking if there was any update. She replied that they had heard nothing. It was unlikely that Gloria was going to let the children go to their supervised visitation without their mother. And while Fotis was looking forward to his court-ordered visit, he also had a meeting with investigators at the New Canaan Police Department. Fotis arrived at the NCPD at approximately 2.47 p.m., a few hours after he had initially agreed to meet with police. He was greeted by Investigation Officer Thomas Patton and Connecticut State Police Detective Christopher Allegro. Fotis notified the investigators that his attorney, Jacob Pytranker, was outside on the phone and questioned if there was any news regarding Jennifer. The investigators told Fotus that no news had come in and that they were hoping he could provide them with key information in an effort to locate her. Fotis began patting his pockets, looking for his cell phone, at which point his attorney came inside and told investigators that both he and Fotis would be leaving without answering any questions. He then handed a cell phone to Fotis, which was ultimately handed over to the police. Fotis's attorney stated that investigators had, quote, no grounds to seize his client's cell phone. But the investigators retorted by saying that they were in the process of obtaining a search and seizure warrant, believing that information regarding Jennifer's disappearance was likely on the device. After obtaining said warrant, investigators made a discovery that ultimately changed the course of the entire investigation. When investigators began searching through FOTUS' cell phone, they found that location services showed he had been in the area of Albany Avenue in Hartford at around 7 p.m. the day Jennifer had gone missing. Albany Avenue is a highly trafficked road that leads into and out of downtown Hartford. Investigators were then tasked with utilizing the information found on the phone to see if and where he had stopped. It appeared that approximately every 50 feet, Fotis was stopping and after reviewing surveillance footage recovered from homes and businesses along Albany Avenue, they saw what appeared to be a Caucasian male driving a Ford F-150 Raptor truck that appeared to be FOTUS, repeatedly stopping and dropping black garbage bags into separate trash receptacles throughout the area. As the investigation into Jennifer's disappearance continued, the New Canaan community came together, holding a vigil for Jennifer at St. Mark's Episcopal Church many of whom in attendance knew her personally and well. For Aaron Cooper, the head of school at New Canaan Country School, he was happy to see such an outpouring of support for someone he considered a friend. Over the year and a half that Jennifer was in New Canaan, she volunteered for the school and was a familiar face to her children's friends and their families. Aaron during the many motions in her divorce proceedings, testified on Jennifer's behalf, speaking about the woman who had grown into his personal friend.
0: Thank you, Reverend. Thank you all for being here. It's heartening to see so many here with us today. As the Reverend said, my name's Aaron Cooper. I'm the head of school at New Canaan Country School. And as many of you know, uh, the five beautiful Dulos children are beloved members of our school community. And I know not everyone here this evening knows Jennifer, but those of us who do know her as an incredibly warm person, as an unbelievably devoted mother, as an active member of our community, supporting everything with her children, volunteering for everything. And as a school that believes in the sanctity of childhood, As foundational to living a life of purpose and one that shares as a community that shares a set of common values we're heartbroken and yet we stand together to support the children and support the family they're with and to support our community throughout this week one of the things I found myself saying to people repeatedly was that all we can do is hold hands and walk together one foot in front of the other and I, I meant it metaphorically but standing here looking at all of you I'm, I'm thinking of it a little bit more literally and and so I ask you to reach out to your neighbor slide along the pew if you need to and take their hand in yours just as they take your hand in theirs
1: while this particular moment was a somber time many people although grieving and worry-stricken came up to read a passage of scripture as the community was holding on to hope that jennifer would be found safely Investigators continued poring through the surveillance footage that showed Fotis driving down Albany Avenue, eventually noticing that a female passenger was riding along with him. After making that discovery, Fotis's new girlfriend, Michelle Traconis, was then brought in for a formal interview herself. During her interview, Michelle stated that she had woken up at 6.30 a.m. on May 24th, and that her and Fotis had sex before they both showered. She then proceeded to make breakfast for Fotis and her daughter. She then went on to say that she met with Fotis and his corporate attorney and close personal friend, Kent Mawini, at the Ford Group office on the second floor at Ford Jefferson Crossing at 8.15 a.m. Roughly an hour later, she met with a friend to drop off an unknown item. Michelle then stated that she met with Fotis at 12 p.m. for lunch, and she noticed that the Ford Raptor was not at the office believing that it was likely being driven by four-group employee and project manager, Paul Gumiani. After leaving the office, Michelle claimed that Fotis asked her to meet up at 80 Mountain Spring Road, a home that had just recently been completed in Farmington, to clean in preparation for a client meeting the following day. She stated that this phone call took place between 2.30 and 3.00 p.m., and the location Fotis asked to meet at was only a five-minute drive from the home they now shared together. She claimed that she had been cleaning windows at the 11,000-square-foot newly constructed home until 5 p.m. Around 5 o'clock, Michelle then claimed that Powell had shown up with the aforementioned Ford Raptor. After swapping vehicles, Fotis and Michelle departed into Hartford, namely the Albany Avenue area. She claimed that she was mostly on her phone during the drive, and that she had noticed that they were in a, quote, creepy area. And while she had been on dump runs with Fotis before, she didn't understand why they were where they were. She confirmed for investigators that it was indeed both her and FOTUS captured on the surveillance camera footage. She went on to state that they both went home, and that was it for the night. The day following Michelle's initial interview, investigators served a search warrant at 4 Jefferson Crossing. Crime scene technicians were called to the scene to process the home for any potential evidence when a set of handwritten notes were found in a trash bin. These notes had two separate handwriting styles, but essentially had laid out an hour-by-hour, play-by-play account of what occurred on May 24, 2019. These notes matched everything Michelle had told to investigators the day before, and became known as the, quote, alibi scripts. Upon confrontation regarding these scripts, Michelle stated that they were written as a means of remembering what had actually happened on May 24th when prompted by Fotis's attorney, Jacob Pytranker. Unfortunately, the evidence recovered from the black garbage bags that Fotis had disposed of while Michelle sat in the truck alongside him, would ultimately implicate her in a potentially horrific crime. Evidence recovered from the bags included the following. Paper towels with blood-like stains. Sponges. Mop heads. Vineyard Vine shirt, size extra small. Antissima bra, two clear ponchos, four zip ties. Testing from the swabs eventually indicated that DNA discovered on the items belonged to a mixture of both Fotis and Jennifer. Things were beginning to look grim. Blood evidence from the home was also revealed to belong to Jennifer Dulos, and DNA recovered from the kitchen sink inside of 69 Wells Lane, belonged to Fotis, who, according to many sources, was not allowed inside of her home. Although investigators did not have a body, they did have enough evidence for a charge. Because investigators were actively searching Fotis' home at 4 Jefferson Crossing, both he and Michelle had been staying at a hotel in Avon, Connecticut. On June 1, 2019, law enforcement descended upon the hotel, taking both Fotis and Michelle into custody presenting them each with one charge of tampering with or fabricating physical evidence, as well as first-degree hindering prosecution. Both attempted to have their $500,000 bond reduced, with each of their lawyers respectively stating that neither had a criminal history and that both had a quote, good standing in their community. However, the state argued that the charges were of a serious nature, Ultimately, however, Judge Stephanie McLaughlin upheld the bond, as well as recommending that if either party posted, they would need to be fitted with GPS tracking devices and have their passports turned over, as well as maintaining zero contact with Jennifer's family. A month after his arrest, Fotis invited the media into his home for an interview, still actively proclaiming his innocence.
5: It's been a very tough time for the whole family. We're all very worried about Jennifer.
4: How do you think the public looks at you?
5: It depends. I think that the people that do not know me, they probably look at me as a monster. As a monster. Yes. Uh, and that is because of the information that has come out. And I cannot speak about what happens. Uh, so they take the narrative that they see from the arrests, the arrest warrants, and what is being reported in the press and they draw their own conclusion. So I've already been convicted in their mind. I want them to know that this is a very, very challenging time for my whole family, and um, we just have to be patient to get to the other side and see what happened. Um, I had my differences with Jennifer, like many people do when they go through uh, a marriage. It didn't work out for us, but that doesn't mean that I wish her ill in any way. I, I tried to go day by day, uh, when it first started, uh, I seriously pinched myself a couple of times and I said, this cannot be true, I'm dreaming this. I'm wearing orange and I'm in a cell, uh, six feet by nine feet, and uh, this, this, is, this cannot be true. So, it's, it's a day by day, uh, hoping we'll get through this.
1: When asked about whether he felt as if he had been treated fairly in the justice system, Fotis acknowledged that he had, claiming to understand that husbands are usually involved in the disappearances or murders of their spouses, but continued calmly explaining that this case was different and that he was an anomaly and had nothing to do with Jennifer's mysterious disappearance.
5: I think with the information they had, they did the best they could. And I understand they have tremendous uh, pressure on them. And it, it's also statistically, when something like this happens, ninety or ninety-five percent is the spouse. So I can understand why people feel like this.
4: And your answer to that is,
5: what's the? When question?
4: people say yes, ninety percent of the time it is the spouse. But well, it's
5: ninety percent. It's not a hundred percent. So when I, people, I'm, I'm in the five or ten percent category.
1: It was during this time when Norm pattis Fotus's newly hired attorney took to the media with a theory that he believed could seemingly explain Jennifer's disappearance. In a statement to NBC News, attorney Norm Pattis stated the following, We have been provided a very dark 500-plus page novel, Jennifer wrote. We are reviewing it now. We are also investigating new information regarding $14,000 worth of medical bills regarding tests just before she disappeared. We don't know what had become of Jennifer, but the quote, Gone Girl Hypothesis, is very much on our mind. The 2012 fictional novel Gone Girl, written by Gillian Flynn, that was subsequently adapted into a feature-length film, follows the story of a woman who discovers her husband's infidelity and fakes her death, ultimately implicating her husband in the process. News of this quote theory was dispelled by friends and family of Jennifer, who claimed that her manuscript, which had been written in 2002, was a story of relationships and finding oneself. Nothing like which Fotis and his attorney had been publicly claiming. Even for the author Gillian Flynn, the theory was, quote, sickening. She stated the following. I've seen in recent coverage that Jennifer's husband and his defense attorney have put forward a so-called gone girl theory to explain Jennifer's disappearance. It absolutely sickens me that a work of fiction written by me would be used by Fotis Dulos's lawyer as a defense and a hypothetical, sensationalized motive behind Jennifer's very real and very tragic disappearance. While both Fotis and Michelle were free on bond, and hopeful to return to some semblance of normality, it wouldn't last for long. On September 4th, Fotis Doulos was once again arrested alongside Michelle Traconis, and charged again with felony tampering with or fabricating physical evidence. This time, he walked out after posting another half-million-dollar bond, alongside his newly hired attorney, Norm Pattis. Both men spoke to the media outside of the Connecticut State Police Troop G Barracks, immediately following his arrest.
2: The requirement to make another bond seems simply a, a stunt on the state's part to try to wear down our, our will to resist. There's not much here that we hadn't heard before, and I question the wisdom of these charges at this late date. We've pled not guilty to the pending charges. Or we intend to plead not guilty to these charges, and we look forward to a full day in court. Uh, it's an exhausting fight. I love my children.
5: That's about it.
1: Just a month later, on October 4th of 2019, Fotis was back in court, dealing with Gloria Farber's civil case. After walking out of the courthouse, Fotis's other lawyer calmly walked up to the podium and, with his hand, dramatically pantomimed a zipping motion across his lips. Fotis looked out to the media after his lawyer walked away and provided a brief statement:
2: "I just
5: want to say that I love my children. I miss that them.
2: Broken family court system.
5: And I think about them all the time. That's all." That's Lives
1: matter. For the most part, Fotis stuck to his bond restrictions. He continued working on projects for the four group. Michelle, on the other hand, moved out of Four Jefferson Crossing, and the relationship between her and Fotus seemingly ended. Again, it was as if Fotis, for the meantime, was going to get back to some sense of normality in his life. But what he didn't know is that one of his most trusted and valued employees had provided investigators with key information in the case. Information that, from the outside looking in, appeared to be incredibly damning. When investigators reached out to the four-group project manager, Powell Gumieni, he was reluctant to speak with them. But after conversing with his legal counsel, he decided to talk. Powell told investigators that he was informed by Fotis that he would be in trouble if he spoke with police because he only possessed a green card, implying that he could somehow have his permanent residency revoked. But now that he had previous conversations with his attorney, he understood that he could speak to investigators without fear of being in trouble, as Fotis had alluded to. When shown a photo of a red Toyota Tacoma pickup truck that had been seen in the New Canaan area on May 24th, near Waveney Park. Powell immediately recognized it as his own truck, and questioned why it would have been there in the first place. When asked who might have had access to his truck, Powell told investigators that it was Michelle and Fotis. He began recalling to them all of the strange things that happened the day before Jennifer's disappearance, and in the days immediately following. Powell stated that the night before Jennifer disappeared... Fotis advised him not to come by the office on the morning of May 24th, as he was to have a meeting with his divorce attorney. But that request was unusual, because Powell didn't come by the office unless he needed something. He believed that Fotis was aware of his comings and goings after working at the company for years, a schedule that had become routine up to that point. That same night, Powell picked up the Silver 4 Group F Ford 150 Raptor and left his red Toyota Tacoma at the property. This wasn't atypical, as during the week, Powell would drive a four-group vehicle to different properties around town, and Michelle or Fotis would drive his Toyota Tacoma for personal reasons or errands. On the 24th, while out tending to some of the developments, Fotis texted Powell asking when he would be coming by the office, to which Powell replied, around 4.30. When he arrived at 4 Jefferson Crossing, no one was home and the keys to his Tacoma truck, along with the vehicle itself, were gone. Powell then left the office and drove over to the newly constructed four-group home on 80 Mountain Spring Road. When he arrived, he saw Fotis and Michelle, but by their reactions, they seemed surprised to see him. Fotis claimed that Michelle was inside of the home cleaning windows while he was doing some work outside, but Powell noticed there were no cleaning supplies around. This is where Powell started to notice that something was wrong. His Toyota Tacoma was parked at 80 Mountain Spring Road, but Fotis was driving the four group Suburban, and Michelle was driving the Jeep. He noticed that his sole key for the vehicle was sticking out of the right passenger door. Fotis told Powell they were going to head back to 4 Jefferson Crossing, where he would park the Suburban, and the two of them could ride back together to the property at 80 Mountain Spring Road to pick up his Toyota Tacoma. When Powell and Fotis arrived back at 80 Mountain Spring Road, he noticed that the key was no longer in the passenger side door, and Fotis asked him if he would like to take the F-150, to which Powell stated no. Fotis reluctantly agreed to return the Tacoma, and Powell took possession of his personal vehicle to run errands later that night. The following week when Powell arrived at work, Fotis told him that Jennifer was missing and questioned where he had been on Friday the 24th. Powell didn't understand because Fotis should have known where he was, as they were in constant contact seemingly all day until the vehicle switch that evening. But nonetheless, it was time for the next work week to begin and back to business as usual for the project manager. Powell dropped off his Tacoma and picked up the Ford F-150 Raptor. But at the end of that week, Powell noticed that Fotis had his Tacoma washed and detailed and began telling him that he needed to replace the seats in the truck. And when replacement seats weren't available, Fotis became angry with Powell, immediately making the project manager suspicious. Powell suggested that he could replace the seats from Fotus's wrecked Porsche, which he subsequently did. But unbeknownst to Fotis, Powell kept the old seats in his garage at home, just in case the police might one day want them. And want them, they did. Armed with all of the physical evidence they had collected, investigators spoke with Dr. James Gill, chief medical examiner for the state of Connecticut. He determined that based on the facts and evidence, as well as looking through the photos at the crime scene, that Jennifer had likely suffered a, quote, non-survivable injury and was willing to state his belief that Jennifer was no longer alive. In his medical opinion, the blood loss discovered in all of the physical evidence at the crime scene, as well as the effort to clean up the scene, would support a, quote, homicide by violence scenario. On January 7, 2020, Fotis Dulos was once again arrested, only this time for a much more serious charge. Norm Pattis is here live.
0: Right. We have him live here. Norm, kind of tell me what's, what's going happening? on. What's um, happening?
2: I haven't seen the warrant yet, but it's my understanding that Mr. Dulos was just arrested and charged with the crime of murder, as to his wife, Jennifer Dulos. It's my understanding that there will be arrests, um, that arrests are simultaneously taking place and that two other individuals are being arrested.
1: In addition to Fotis being arrested, Michelle Traconis was rearrested and charged with one count of conspiracy to commit murder. But who was the other individual? During the investigation, it was apparent that one of the people questioned, four-group attorney and personal friend of Fotis, Kent Mawini. provided investigators with conflicting statements over the course of two separate interviews. His name was listed in the quote alibi scripts and Michelle had identified him as being at the Four Group office on the morning of May 24th, 2019, although he claimed that he wasn't and that he had only previously met Michelle once. Fotis's bond was set at $6 million, while Michelle Traconis and Kent Mawini's bonds were set at $2 million apiece. Fotis and Michelle were each able to post their bonds once again, but Kent was unable to and was subsequently held in custody. As a condition of posting their bonds, both Fotis and Michelle were once again fit with GPS tracking devices and were not allowed to travel outside of the state of Connecticut. With Michelle out of his home and love life, Fotis had a new girlfriend, Anna Curry. Anna had worked at a financial firm and signed a $3 million assurance note, to post a bond for Fotis. Later reports eventually claimed that she was already living with Fotis at 4 Jefferson Crossing at the time of his third bond release. Then on January 23rd, 2020, just 16 days after his arrest for the murder of his estranged wife, Jennifer Doulos, Fotis was once again back in the courtroom, this time because he made what a judge called a quote, very stupid move. Fotis, although being actively monitored via GPS, was allowed to continue working on four group projects, but had gone to the site of a memorial for Jennifer near his home. He ended up removing that memorial, and due to his actions, the judge revoked his work condition, establishing that he could only leave his home for doctor or attorney appointments. For Fotis, this likely meant the end of the road. Without work, he could no longer make the money he needed to meet his bond conditions. He was now millions of dollars in debt, and the court had called an emergency bond hearing for January 28th, just five days after his house arrest conditions were restricted. The reason for this hearing was because the prosecution realized that Fotis didn't have the necessary collateral to post his $6 million bond, and they were actively seeking to have it revoked. On the morning of January 28th, Fotis requested Anna go to the bank to withdraw money, while he stayed back and got ready for the hearing. She was supposed to be his ride to the courthouse that morning, but while she was out, she had gotten a phone call from Fotis. He sounded out of breath, but told her that he was leaving and heading to the courthouse himself. On her way to the hearing, Anna received a call from one of Fotis's lawyers, asking her where he was and why he had not shown up to the hearing. Officers were then dispatched to Fort Jefferson crossing as the GPS monitor showed that it was still active at the home Though no one was inside the home itself officers first on scene ultimately located Fotis in the garage Good
3: afternoon We understand you guys want information, but this investigation is very preliminary at this point point. And there's only so much that we can release. Okay. Today at about 11:54 hours this morning, officers from the Farmington Police Department were asked to respond to Mr. Dulos' residence for a well-being check because he was late for a court appearance tonight. When officers responded, um, they could see through a window that Mr. Dulos was sitting in his vehicle and he had obvious signs of medical distress. Officers forced entry and immediately began to perform life-saving measures. Um, Medics responded from the East Farmington Fire Department, Yukon Health, and AMR Ambulance to assist with those uh, life-saving measures. Mr. Dulos was uh, transported to Yukon Health um, by ambulance where he is now listed as critical condition.
1: Inside the garage, Fotis had made sure to seal all points of entry. He then placed photos of his children inside the dashboard of his four-group Chevrolet Suburban, got inside, and started the vehicle. Inside of the home, police located a note on his kitchen counter. All, if you are reading this, I am no more. I refuse to spend even an hour more in jail for something I had nothing to do with. Enough is enough. If it takes my head to end this, so be it. I want it to be known that Michelle Traconis had nothing to do with Jennifer's disappearance, and neither did Kent Mawini. I asked the state to let them free of any such accusations. I also asked the state to stop harassing my friends. They are honorable people. Please let my children know that I love them. I would do anything to be with them, but unfortunately, we all have our limits. The state will not rest until I rot in jail. My attorney can explain what happened with the bags on Albany Avenue. Everything else is a story fabricated by law enforcement. I want to thank all my family and friends that stood by me this difficult time. Anna Curry, I am sorry for letting you down and not continuing the fight. Fotis. Fotus was flown from the University of Connecticut Health Center to Jacoby Medical Center in Bronx, New York, to receive treatment. He was placed into a hyperbaric chamber in an effort to reverse the self-inflicted carbon monoxide poisoning. Medical experts were not certain that Fotus would make it through this health event, and over the course of the next two days, several media outlets reported that Fotus had died, while others reported those initial reports were wrong. It wasn't until the evening of January 30th, 2020, that an accurate update would be provided when Norm Pattis spoke with the media outside of Jacoby Medical Center.
2: Fotus Doulis was declared dead tonight at 532 His family came in from Greece and decided today to donate his organs so that he will live on in some form in the assistance that he can provide to others in their own individual struggles.
1: Prior to being taken off life support with the assistance of Jacoby Medical Center personnel, the five Dulos children were brought in to say goodbye to their father one last time. Attorney Norm Pattis didn't believe Fotis took his own life because he was subconsciously feeling guilty, but more so due to the public pressure and being presumed guilty before seeing his day in the court of law.
2: Having said that, uh, we'd want to thank everybody for their interest. And as to those who contend that Mr. Dulos' death reflects a consciousness of guilt, we say no. We say it was more a conscious, a conscience overborne with the weight of a world that was too busy to listen and that wanted a story more than it wanted the truth. And we're not bitter and we're not accusing anybody of having driven him to his death. But we wonder why in the court of public opinion, the presumption of innocence was so quickly satisfied.
1: Fotis met and married the person who could give him everything he ever wanted. But unfortunately, the same couldn't be said for Jennifer, who just wanted a partner who loved her back the same way she loved him. Over the course of Jennifer's disappearance, many have gone through her writings, just as we have for this episode. It's clear just how vulnerable she was on her blog, covering the ups and downs, opening up herself for the world to see. She wrote of the good times, and, ironically, foreshadowed the bad times to come. Her disappearance and presumed death has left the world with so many unanswered questions in the wake of Fotis Doulos' suicide. Most believe the answer to Jennifer's tragic disappearance died with Fotis that day. In his suicide letter, Fotis claimed that Norm Pattis could explain what happened with the trash bags. And while Norm has gone on record to say that he could indeed explain their bizarre behavior, He claimed that that information was to be stated publicly only in court and would ultimately make things seem much less troubling. Ultimately, as it currently stands, we don't know the alleged reasoning that Fotis's attorney continues holding close to the chest. Michelle Traconis and Kent Mawini still have active cases in the mysterious disappearance of Jennifer Doulos, and both are presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. As of 2021, Kent Mawini has been able to post bond, and investigators continue actively searching Waveney Park as well as the other developed properties owned by the 4 Group, looking for any clues or indication of where Jennifer or her remains may still be hidden.